The system contains adult content and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Thirty-year-old Kevin Keith was arrested at his home in Crestline, halfway between Cyrus and Mansfield, by both of those police departments. Police were led to him by the partial imprint of a license plate number left in a snowbank after the getaway car ran into it as it left the scene of the crime. He is charged with three counts of murder for allegedly... The car did not lead them to Kevin. How did he get in jail 15 days before you even found the car? And that started me to investigate and ask questions and everything. And when the car hit into the, the snowbank, it left an imprint of the plates. And those plates came back immediately to someone else. The same day of the murder, it came out Rodney Melton, 1979 Chevrolet Impala. They had the 043, there was never any mention of it. And once they got a hold of uh, Melanie Davison, the 043 just popped out all over the place, and they used that 043 to pin that on him and let the other guy go. And I just, I just couldn't believe all that. Why wouldn't they do a thorough investigation? I couldn't answer those questions. You know, I really couldn't answer those questions. I said, it's gotta be some mistake. When I heard Juanita, the little girl, come out and say, Daddy's friend Bruce, I immediately knew who Bruce was. And I know what Bruce does, and I also know his brother Rodney. Everybody was afraid of him. So how did the car lead them to Kevin Keith? It was, it's impossible. It's impossible. As we've heard before, seven-year-old Juanita Reeves identified the gunman as her daddy's friend, Bruce. And it turns out there was, in fact, a friend of her dad's named Bruce living in the area, Bruce Melton. Rodney and Bruce's names circle this crime in documents and police tape. Rodney was at the scene the night of the crime, saying his car was broken down, so he had to get a ride from Mansfield. The name Bruce was brought up by one of the surviving victims. The numbers in the snowbank match Rodney's car. You'd think with all of these possible connections, investigators would have pursued these leads heavily. So did they? Is there more here? Or is it just a coincidence in a small community? I'm Kim Kardashian, and this is The System. Rodney and Bruce are brothers. We know Rodney Melton has a history of violence because he was found to be guilty of a murder at the age of 17. He shot a boy outside of a school dance. This is Lori Rothschild again, a TV producer and innocence advocate. I did pull the police reports and they were at a school dance and Rodney came out, there was an altercation. He got a gun and shot the kid. Rodney has a history with violence and it's you know, it's, it's, it, it's recorded. It's not like, you know, anybody has to make it up and it's not a suspicion. It's, it's true because there's, there's a murder that happens when he's 17, he's able to shoot someone and kill someone at the age of 17. And, and his affiliations with different circles of crime goes on throughout his life. Kevin, as we've covered, didn't have a particularly violent criminal record. He did have a robbery on his record, 
a purse snatching where he knocked down a woman to steal her bag. But as we've just heard, another suspect in this crime did have a record of violence, murder to be exact. And that person is Rodney Melton. Of course, this isn't a reason by itself to believe the wrong person is behind bars. It's just context, perhaps important context that didn't really make it to trial or to the public eye. The murder Rodney Melton was convicted for was years ago when he was 17, but Rodney was also involved in a crime right before the Bucyrus Estates murders, something that didn't come out before trial. In late 1993, pharmacies all over Ohio were getting robbed all over, within an hour or two vicinity around Crawford County. But they were happening all over the state. And they were all basically being robbed the same way, where the robbers would go and cut the alarm lines. So that would be, you know, their first act was to cut the lines, make sure the alarm doesn't go off. And once they were able to access the place, they would just rob them of all the drugs. Every state has what they call a state board of pharmacy. And this guy, Bill Paget, who's at the state board of pharmacy, starts seeing how many pharmacies are being hit, because it's a lot. It's a huge list. So he, he does a compilation of those pharmacies, and there's a list in his, the report that he creates. And he sees that it's all within this certain vicinity. And he starts to investigate on his own. January of 94, there is a pharmacy that's robbed in a town called Frazysburg, Ohio, which is about 90 minutes south of Crestline. There was a witness, this woman watched as these these guys got into and out of a car. She's the one who called the cops and said, there's a really suspicious car that was outside. And she had the wherewithal to get the license plate. And she reported it. That information then went into the State Board of Pharmacy, and they linked that car to a guy named Russell Gardner. And when Bill Padgett contacts Crawford County, they're like, oh, yeah, we've been, we've been uh, watching those guys for months now. And Gardner is known to the police as being involved with this organized group that were robbing the pharmacies. He, he was well-known to the cops. Two people listed in that group was Rodney Melton and Bruce Melton. Along with the Meltons, there were a couple other names on the list that you may be familiar with, including Demetrius Reeves, Juanita and Quentin's father. Again, this was on the radar. This group of guys was already on the cops' radar. The ring is coming from Crawford County. And Crawford County had created a task force to follow this robbery ring. And the quote from Crawford County was, they were actively working on felony cases against individuals in the group. And that was dated August of 1993. August of 1993. It's been going on for a while. It's now January of 94, right? Here we are six months later. Remember how I said we'd talk about the other criminal activity happening in the Crawford County area? This was the other big investigation going on right before the Bucyrus Estates murders. And it was a much bigger deal than the small-time drug dealing being done by Kevin Keith and the other members of the Keith family. And the lead of the task force is a guy named Jerry Hickman, and he's based out of Galleon. Jerry Hickman is the guy who is now contacting Bill Paget and saying, I'm the guy that's, that's doing the whole thing, and gives lots of information to Bill Paget. In fact, if you look at the report, Jerry Hickman gives daily updates to Bill Paget. 
and he tells him he's from this CI that he's working with. By CI, Lori means confidential informant. So Jerry Hickman gives the first report, I think, on the 18th of January. He identifies his CI as being the driver for the ring. We now know that that woman's name is Lynn McKee. So Bill Paget from the State Board of Pharmacy, anytime a, a CI is referenced, he believes the CI is Lynn McKee. However, we now know, based on looking back into what the task force was doing prior to the State Board of Pharmacy coming into the case, that Lynn McKee was not their CI at first. It was a guy named Rudell Chapman. So Rudell Chapman was the original CI, but when the State Board of Pharmacy came in, Jerry Hickman drops Rudell for reasons unknown and inserts Lynn McKee as his CI. Rudell Chapman was one of the two confidential informants for the police for this pharmacy crime ring. Remember, the murders were at the apartments of Marichal Chapman, Rudell Chapman's sister. According to Richard Warren, when the gunman entered Rudell's sister's apartment, he said to the pleading victims, you should have thought about that before your brother ratted on me. From everything we've read and heard, it's unanimous that Rudell was snitching on criminal activity in the area. And maybe he ratted on the Keith family. But we can see from Bill Paget's report that that wasn't the only thing Rudell told cops about. And the pharmacy burglary ring was a much bigger deal in the grand scheme. When I first heard about this, it sounded almost unbelievable to me. Confidential informants? It felt like something out of a heist movie. I asked Kevin's brother, Charles, for some context. See, down there, when you're an informant, all you got to do is tell on somebody. There's only so many black families, so you just tell on somebody and you can keep rolling. That's all it was, family, because, you know, we have mutual relatives, and you're talking a very small community, so I can be upset and I can tell on you and I can tell on my cousin. It's not like... You know, you're talking big gangs or like in the city, a big gang gonna come out and get you down here snitching on friends and family and that kind of stuff, that's all. The 21st of January, this task force does a huge raid in a town called Crestline where the Keith family, small-time drug dealers, drug dealers, but small-time, this is not heroin. This is crack. This is probably joints, things like that but it makes the front page of the paper in Crestline. Huge arrest of these drug dealers. None of the men associated in that arrest were any of the people involved in the pharmacy burglary ring. So Jerry Hickman does like a, by the way, we did a huge, you know, a huge raid on the 21st in Crestline. We got a lot of these guys down. That's what it looks like in the report. And he gives like, again, daily updates from there the 21st, the 23rd, the 25th, the 26th, the 27th, all of these reports are coming in from Hickman about Rodney Melton and this gang of pharmacy burglars. The 21st ha- kind of happens. The Keith family arrest kind of happens. Kind of like, yay, we got these guys, but that has nothing to do with the State Board of Pharmacy. When Kevin Keith was arrested for the Chapman family murders, he was out on bail for the January 21st drug raid. If you remember, in episode two, Kevin described how he felt when he was being arrested for the murders. He says he was surprised when the police kicked his door in because he hadn't sold any drugs since his last drug arrest on January 21st. According to Kevin, he was laying low, waiting out the pending drug charges. The State Board of Pharmacy is like, who cares about those guys, right? And they move on. And then all of a sudden, on the 11th, everything goes silent. 
there is not one entry from the 11th until the 16th. The murders happen on the 13th of February. And in that next entry, in that next report, Hickman's surveillance, like I said, just went silent. And Hickman tells Paget that it was unrelated and that Kevin Keith committed the crime. That, that was it. That's, that's, he said, they caught the killer. As his name is Kevin Keith. Kevin's name came up from a police officer by the name of Jerry Hickman. He, at the scene of the crime, was throwing around the name Kevin Keith as the possible person that did this because there was a case against Kevin uh, with Rudell Chapman, one of the family members, as an informant. So everybody already assumed, well, here's a new kid in town. He's a big guy. He hit the description. Uh, let's get him. Charles is right about this, and it's recorded in police reports. Lieutenants David Dane and Jerry Hickman were at the Bucyrus Estates crime scene on the night of the murders. Here's exactly what was written in the case file. Lieutenants Dane and Hickman returned to the scene. They advised that they had went to the hospital and spoken to Riddell, who was still there, but ready to leave and go into hiding. Riddell told them that Rodney Melton had come to the hospital and told Riddell in front of other family members that this happened because Riddell was narking on the people in Crestline. The officers advised the case involving Riddell involved Gene Keith Sr., Gene Keith, Kevin Keith, Demetrius Reeves, and Roy Price. They advised that Gene Keith Sr. had told someone that they were going to whack families in retribution for their arrest. When this police report and the pharmacy burglary reports were shared with me, I found them pretty shocking. The police maintain that there was a strong motive in this case. But the deeper I go, the more it seems like a gray area for me. There were so many people that could have had the same or similar motive. Did the police give all of these potential suspects the same due diligence? Kevin was arrested only two days later. The two police officers that first mentioned Kevin's name had relationships with people in the community. They're quick to name Kevin, but it seems that was purely based on local speculation at the time. Not to mention, Rodney was also in the hospital that night, being vocal about the same motive. At this point, I really wanted to know why. If there were other viable suspects, why was Kevin Keith arrested just two days later? Why would there be such a push to arrest him? Was there a reason law enforcement would be rushing to solve this murder? Thank you very much. So it turns out there was pressure. There was pressure on everyone in local law enforcement to solve this crime because it had received national attention coming all the way up from the White House. President Clinton spoke today at the Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy in London, Ohio, about his anti-crime initiatives. Last year, the Senate passed the so-called Three Strikes and Out provision, requiring life imprisonment for three-time federal felons. The other day, I flew into Shreveport, Louisiana, and the front page of the newspaper had a letter that a teenage girl had written to me. Two days after the murders, President Bill Clinton gave a speech in London, Ohio, about his anti-crime efforts. And her letter said this, if I could meet the president, I would ask him to make his top priority crime. Crime is so bad, I'm afraid to go outside. I really didn't pay attention to crime until someone shot and killed my friend, who was one of my church members. My concern is, listen to this, my concern is, I won't have anyone to marry. In that speech, he indicated his support for the three strikes concept, 
which would make it easier for courts to sentence repeat criminals to life imprisonment. He also endorsed a federal death sentence to killers of police officers. In that speech, Clinton cited the Bucyrus estate's murders by name. Over the weekend, four people were shot and a little girl was killed in an apartment complex in Bucyrus, not too far from here. When President Clinton came to London, Ohio, to promote his crime bill speech, there was a murder that happened, and he mentioned that murder. Well, they didn't have anybody in jail at that time. So mentioning the Bucyrus murders, they're like, holy shit, the, the president's mentioning this. We better do something. They went and grabbed Kevin while the president was speaking, and boom, boom, boom. I thought they were going to hold him for 48 hours. I said, they're going to at least question him. They never questioned Kevin to this date. President Clinton gave his speech to the Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy at 12.25 p.m. on February 15th. Later that same day, Kevin Keith was arrested in Crestline, Ohio. Bill Clinton came out and gave a speech in London, Ohio. He just happened to be in Ohio and gave that speech. I really do think the atmosphere really changed where people wanted to help. I mean, you've got a president of the United States and he's talking about a case. It is in their small town, and I really do believe that's why they said it was me. We have to look inside, too. Yes, there's a role for the Congress. Yes, there's a role for the police. But there's a role for the American people, too. You can't make me believe that we can't take our streets back and give our kids their futures back, and we're going to do our best, starting with the crime bill. We want you to help us. Thank you, and God bless you. The timing of President Clinton's anti-crime speech in Ohio is remarkable to me. It seems like just another one of these strange odds stacked against Kevin. trial beginning, me and my attorney was just going back and forth because I didn't have the money to pay the guy. I was making promises to him, and uh, that was the situation. I had no money for no experts, none of that. All I know, I didn't do it, and I was standing on that. Which is like why your brother is like so amazing and commendable that your brother has spent so much time. What's the thing about my brother Charles? He done went through 100 pair of tennis shoes. I mean, everybody I ran into that's from Canton, the first thing they tell me is, man, your brother, <laughs> I seen him walking on this side of town. I seen him here, and all he talks about is you. And all he talk- So he's a little bit obsessed. You know, really, I would like to talk to my brother sometime, but he's so kind of caught up, you know. That's my brother, I've, but I want to, sometime I want to call him, and I want to talk to my brother, but he's been in this fighting mode for so long. When I talk to him, I'm always talking to a supporter mm-hmm. and an advocate. And I just want to talk to my brother sometimes. Like, I need that sometimes. So... I understand. Yeah. You also need that normalcy and that connection also, instead of just, like, focusing just on the case. Well, especially, especially with him, because that is my brother, my older brother. Yeah. And I can see it kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of breaking him, you know? It's kind of breaking him, so... You know, I could tell. I could, I could tell this, this kind of, you know, this, 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 yeah. It has affected him in a, a way that 
I just wish he could kind of go on with his life too, because 28 years is a long time, and Charles has been at it 28 years. If I get on the phone with him right now, he's an advocate, he's not my brother. I got divorced, I don't even remember what year. It was a few years, it might've been five years after, but everything in our life had turned to Kevin. The floors were full packed with papers. There was stuff on the walls and that's all we talked about. And you know, she wanted to go have a good time. The normal things that a couple wants to do, well, all that had died with us, actually with me. And I didn't feel like doing any of these things anymore. She was helping me and it just got to be too much for her. It wasn't her brother, it wasn't her passion. So, you know, we got divorced. Um, I never even thought about the divorce because that wasn't the worst thing happening, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it gave me an opportunity to really go mad crazy and dig, 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 dig. I could stay up all night. I could go anytime I wanted. I mean, I could do all the things that I needed to do, but had I had a family, it would not have gone like that. We actually had to fire the first attorneys that we had. They did nothing, they did not talk to me. I had all these documents, and every time I went down there to show them one, they would take and make a copy of it. I said, you guys don't have this stuff? And I found out that they didn't have any of it. Kevin says, Chuck, I'm not gonna die with these attorneys, so he fired them. I think he went like maybe six months or more without an attorney. After that, the Ohio Public Defender's Office got involved and they gave us Rachel Troutman. You know, and she told me that Kevin had no more appeals left, which those first attorneys made sure that they were burnt. There's no more appeals. And once you have no more appeals, they're about to set a date. The only thing that we can argue is actual innocence. And that was the first time I've heard of that. I says, well, he is actually innocent. I says, here, you can have all the evidence that I have. I brought boxes and you can have it. It's not gonna do me any good. So I went home and about three or four months later, they called me and they says, hey, can you come down here? After Kevin was convicted in 1994, Charles worked tirelessly with his brother on this case, even when it seemed like Kevin's legal counsel wasn't getting anywhere. In 2007, Kevin finally got represented by Rachel Troutman. She began researching Kevin's case, but it took until 2010, the year of Kevin's execution, for a significant movement. When they were getting ready to execute him, and they were going to take him out, he says, Chuck, they're getting ready to move me. That's the only time I've ever kissed a man on the lips. It was a kiss of goodbye. I can see it plain as day. I said, damn, man, it, take my brother out. And it didn't happen. He got no, he didn't even make the ride to Lucasville. He said, dang, man, I mean, the clemency came through and I mean, I'd have bowed at Rachel's feet, I'd have kissed her feet for what she had done for me, because I mean, it was a nightmare. I was like, here we are, if she loses this clemency, it's over, there's no second shot. And that's one of the things that scares me about this, you get one shot at everything, one shot. Everything at that time, it was just so kind of harried. It was like, we were waiting any day now, he was supposed to get an execution date. This is Rachel Troutman, Kevin's current attorney. When I first, you know, started to help out on the case, it felt very kind of, not hopeless, but it just, the odds of, of, of something good happening, it, it just felt very, it was very uncomfortable because it felt like everything was laid out there for the jury. And there are all these, these, you know, pieces of evidence that should have 
somewhere along the way, caused a court to say this is the wrong person and granted a new trial. But that hadn't happened. It had been argued, it had been presented, it was laid out in front of how many judges. And so when we, when I first started to help on the case, it was like, what do we do here? You know, everybody's heard it and they don't care. One of my go-to things was I would read through old newspaper articles because there are a lot of people who would speak to the, to a reporter who didn't end up testifying at, at trial. And so I was kind of curious to see what that looked like. And our office maintains kind of a database of, of old newspaper articles. And so as I'm going through these old articles, one of the witnesses that Kevin's defense attorneys had called was this guy, Rodney Melton. So his name was in one of the newspaper articles referencing Kevin. And also in that newspaper article, it referenced in uh, a pharmacy burglary ring that was um, that a bunch of people had just been arrested for, you know, their, their role in, in uh, robbing a bunch of pharmacies across Ohio. And it, uh, it listed the name of the pharmacy board investigator who had kind of put it all together. So I reached out to that pharmacy board investigator and I asked for all of his records concerning that um, that investigation for the pharmacy burglary ring, starting from before the the time that the crime occurred, the one that Kevin is convicted for, and ending after. Because the, this person, Rodney Milton, was the alternative suspect. And so if he was under investigation through that time period, even if that investigation had nothing to do with, with, with Kevin in this case, I thought maybe there would be something in there demonstrating where he was during the time um, that these murders occurred. And, you know, I, I saw in those materials that two weeks before the murders occurred, Rodney Melton had told a, a confidential informant that he was paid $15,000 to uh, essentially commit this crime. When I heard this, I couldn't believe it. In the pharmacy burglary report, Rachel found documentation of Rodney Melton threatening to commit a violent crime. There's actually a paper trail of this, and yet it was never presented in court during Kevin's trial. According to the report, Rodney had told Hickman's confidential informant that he was paid $15,000 to cripple the man who was responsible for the raids in Crestline, Ohio last week. This report was logged on January 31st, 1994, meaning Rodney was referring to the Keith family drug raid. We've already heard that Rudell was the informant for the drug raid. And if you're putting two and two together here, that means Rodney would have been threatening Rudell with this statement. Rudell Chapman, whose sister was Marichelle Chapman, a victim of the Bucyrus murders. Remember, the shooter said, you should have thought about that before your brother started ratting on people. Whoever opened fire on apartment 17B was looking for Rudell. When I started to investigate and when we first found that the pharmacy board file, the day I got it, the, the, the moment, I think, the moment I saw that quote, uh, about Rodney Melton being paid $15,000 to commit the crime. I emailed my boss, I still have the email, and said, I just became convinced that I'm gonna win this case. And I was. I mean, even if you have Kevin as a suspect, you still have Rodney as a suspect. You have all those guys that Rudell supposedly snitched on, all nine of those. You have everybody that was involved in the pharmacy burglary. I mean, these are all suspects. Now, it's funny because as we sit here right now, we haven't said a whole lot 
about Kevin, who Kevin is. I mean, all this stuff. We're talking about everybody else because that's what I saw. I'm like, this ain't even nothing to do with Kevin. They just inserted him. That was it. Despite the possibility of other suspects, Kevin was the only one ever arrested and charged with this crime. Was this case investigated thoroughly? The more I hear, the more I'm skeptical. And the more I feel there's at least reasonable doubt about Kevin's guilt. If every avenue wasn't explored, who's at fault for that? Who's ultimately responsible for the mismanagement of a case like this? You know, it's really hard to say what the specific motivations of some of these police officers were, but I don't think it's too hard to imagine that some short-term gains related to power on a very small local level were enough to entice them to, to do what they felt they had to do. We'll get into this more next time on The System. The System is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Big City TV and Tenderfoot TV. I'm Kim Kardashian, your host and executive producer. From Big City TV, executive producer is Lori Rothschild and Saldi. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Lead creative producer is Meredith Stedman. Production, editing, and sound design by Tristan Bangston and Cameron Taggy. Additional sound design by Cooper Skinner. Production manager is Tracy Kaplan. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Voiceover work by Miles Agee. Associate producer is Jamie Albright, mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner and Devin Johnson.